Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Canada is a major oil and gas producing company, uh, country. Mr. Speaker, higher inflation means higher prices for families. 21% higher for apples, 22% higher for bacon. So what does this Prime Minister have to say to young people who've given up on ever being able to own their own home? We got this big nothing. It's just inflation. <laughs> Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and why it's shitty. Today, on our last episode of 2021, all signs point to indicators of Canadian economic health being super politicized this week and likely for the foreseeable future. We'll give you a primer for the fall economic update, which drops December 14th, the day the show is out. And I want to hear some reflections on this year from our backbench, highlights and lowlights, and what we hope to see in 2022. Joining me this week, Jaskaran Sandhu is back. He's the senior consultant at State and co-founder of Boz News. What up? How goes it? Jason Markasov is here. He's a contributor at McLean's. Hello. Good day. And Murad Hamadi, reporter at The Logic, joins us from Ottawa. Hello. Hey. <laughs> Let's get into it. (laughs) So in the grand scheme of things, fall economic statements don't really do anything to change our lives. They're cursory updates the government provides before the budget to give everyone indication about what kind of spending the government is projecting. The last several years have been the same, a lot of spending to help us all get out of the pandemic. What does affect our lives is how politicians talk to us about the economy, and this is what I want to get into today. Over the last several months, we have seen politicians across party lines politicize things like inflation, wage subsidies, paid sick leave, inflation, investments in industry, benefits, inflation, seriously, inflation. We've seen them use bad memes and talk about and assign blame for an increasingly out-of-reach housing market. We haven't seen many solutions or proof that our politicians understand what is happening to our wallets or to the economy or how government finances fiscal policy works. Frankly, it's all a bit disappointing, and that is rant over from me. (laughs) So as we head into another week of all this, let's try and figure out what the heck is actually going on beneath the petty political theater. To start, the debate over Bill C-2 continues. Listeners will remember that this is the big $7.4 billion, just in case another lockdown happens, Bill, that offers various COVID recovery things like aid to businesses that have lost 40 to 50 percent in revenue. Christia Freeland called it insurance policy. As we're recording, this bill is being reviewed one last time, and the discussions around it have devolved into, well, a bit of a shit show. So, Jason, Christia Freeland announced Bill C-2 would cost $7.4 billion and that the money will come out of the Consolidated Revenue Fund, a fancy title for the government's bank account. But immediately afterwards, conservative MP Candace Bergen started throwing shade at Christia Freeland, and she said, we're not sure where this money's coming from, whether you're borrowing or cutting other programs. We hear this question from the opposition a lot. Where is the money coming from? 
But why would Candace Bergen say that she's not sure where the money is coming from if Christia Freeland just said it? Because it sounds good politically. And a lot of what opposition will do, and government sometimes will do too, is say things that sound really good politically. It was interesting. On Sunday morning, Pierre Polyev uh, was doing a press conference where he was kind of laying out, setting the table for the fiscal update and for this week that we'll be talking about his scare quotes, just inflation, blaming uh, Trudeau for so much of the financial and economic and monetary situation. And one of his big demands was, you know, and we want this government to cut discretionary spending. And so one of the first questions was, okay, do you cut the childcare funding that's going out. And he hemmed and hawed and so much. Because there's one big truism in all financial debates, especially in conservative debates, is that people hate spending, but people love programs. But you can't have programs without spending. Don't tell me that. (laughs) That's not what people want to hear. But that's the truth, Jason. And this is my problem. All these like phrases and words are good slogans, but they're not truth economically or financially. Murad, please step in here. Like, why do we keep hearing this from opposition leaders? You've got so many hours of the day to fill and so many uh, clubs to deliver a week. (laughs) It is undoubtedly true that this government has now spent more over the last 18 going on 20 months than uh, would be normal at a time like this. Obviously, that is related to the pandemic. I think there is some ambiguity in the way that the government talks about its spending plans that sort of feeds into this. National Bank had a report at the end of last month about how capital stocks, which is like the investment in the economy, has been dropping systematically for the last five years. Uh, Last year, it actually contracted outside of housing, of course. What that means is businesses are investing less to boost productivity and to grow for the future, that's really bad for the economy. Like, that is a threat to long-term growth. The Conservatives asked about it for all of one day in the House, as far as I I can tell. Uh, And the Liberal response was, quite frankly, just to ignore it. Like, the response on that from the Liberal government was, because it was the same day as the Labor Force survey came out, the response in the House was, look at the great job growth we have. Like, that's not the subject at hand. The subject at hand is capital flows. I realize that doesn't make for good clips, but, like, long-term, it's really important. So, like, the Liberal government could perhaps answer questions about specific subjects with answers about those specific subjects uh, rather than talking points their way out of it with any good economic news. Like, sure, the overall economic picture can be improving, but we can't ignore specific parts of the economy that need attention. You make an interesting point, right? Like, Chris, you're feeling you know, wants to, and I'm quoting, take some quiet Canadian pride. The statistics that she keeps citing show that the economy is actually doing well. Canadian GDP grew by 5.4% in the third quarter of 2021. We beat the U.S. and Japan. Jobs recovery has been very strong. We're at 106% of the jobs we had pre-COVID. Exports surged to $56.1 billion in October, the highest level ever. Despite these statistics, Pierre Polyev, the conservative finance critic, immediately asked, will there be a housing crash? And then, is the housing market unstable? So, Jaskarin, does any of this make sense to you? Is it productive to be listening to some of the discussions the politicians are having in the way that they're having it? Look, I have no formal background in economics. Uh, What makes me 
quite surprisingly, as qualified to speak on it as most of our political decision makers. <laughs> and much like my political decision makers, I also enjoy shit posting and memes, uh, which seems to be an ongoing theme here, as we even debate this topic in of itself. To Freelance's point, I thought it was kind of funny, the, her response to Polyev, uh, and I have the quote here in front of me, it's really important for Canadians not to be misled by a false narrative, right? Kind of talking to that point you were making about this quiet pride. Look, what's happening in Canada in, in terms of inflation, in many ways, isn't unique. Uh, we are seeing inflation numbers rise everywhere. Uh, United States have seen incredible increase in inflation. We are in a bit of a weird kind of stage of the pandemic, really. And it's kind of an awkward situation we're in, right? We're, we're seeing... Uh, some changes happen where we don't know if it's temporary or if it's going to be long-term, right? It's hard to plan around that. And so you have, for example, wage growth. That is happening. You're having job creation happening. You're seeing changes in consumer behaviors, uh, more demand for goods uh, with coupled with uh, major supply issues, right? It's all this is coming to a head uh, in this kind of really strange way. And the gambit here, the gamble, sorry, is whether or not we think this is more of a long-term, going to have long-term ramifications, or this is just a blip, and we kind of hold steady with what we're doing. But what this does allow for is great political theater. Uh, and you're seeing two uh, important characters kind of dictate the pace of this conversation. Again, Freeland on one side and Polyev on the other side. They're literally made for each other. Like, it's so good how they're engaging with one another on this. Uh, in, in many ways, do reflect the conversations we're, we're having in real life. You said that it's so good, this battle between Christia Freeland and Pierre Polyev, but it worries me. To what extent is the Liberal government to blame for inflation? And, and I know we've talked about this time and time again, but there seems to be a complete ignorance and avoidance of the fact that there are larger external financial factors at play that maybe the Canadian government can't do anything about. The Conservative opposition clearly wants to pin the blame for inflation on the government. It's not enough that they want to attack the inaction or the lack of action to soothe the pressures of inflation. They want to create this notion with this branding of just inflation that everything is terrible and it's all Justin Trudeau's fault. That's their political MO. They have to engineer a narrative that, that fits that. They don't have to engineer it. They want to. They choose to, you know, political imperative tends to be that you blame when the economy is crappy or when things are tough. You point to reasons why those guys did that. You can't say they're blameless. This is politics. I know that politics is terrible and I love your idealism about that politics shouldn't be terrible, Fatima, but politics is terrible. And I think we have to understand that it's a bit of a really unfortunate, shitty baseline. But into the void, uh, we're seeing the conservatives criticize the hell out of the uh, Trudeau Liberals for inaction. And we're also seeing some premiers uh, step into the void. Uh, Legault, Ford, and Kenny most uh, prominently are either planning or talking about uh, doing some measures to soothe, you know, maybe put more money in people's pockets. I mean, I think there's a, a, to Jason's point, like a, the job of the opposition is to oppose. And there's this thing that's happened over the last six years in the Liberals have been in government where like, and I, this is not a, uh, by any means a novel or unique insight, but where sort of the uh, the declaration that they care about something or that they're paying attention to it is a substitute for actually doing anything about it. Yeah, and I think this is the problem with the political theater. Like, I understand politics is shitty, but with the fall economic statement dropping today as this episode comes out, can we expect them to address some of it? 
at or are we just going to see this conversation continue? And if so, how how do we push back on it? So the fall economic statement will have some uh, amount of spending in it. It looks like you know after the twenty nineteen election, what they did was basically just a numbers update. It's like here's the state of the economy right now, but there's no actual program spending in it. It looks like there will be some, uh, and the leaks uh, to various outlets have suggested it's going to be sort of modest spending. Also, I'd note that the day we're recording, which is the day before you're hearing this, uh, because of course all our listeners listen uh, the moment this comes out, <laughs> Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem and uh, Finance Minister Christopher Freeland are announcing the bank's renewed mandate, which again is a 2% sort of target between the, the 1 and 3 range. So that is significant. It sort of stayed the course, but... Fall economic updates, budgets, they are now messaging documents, right? They are, here is the government positioning what it says, what it thinks is important. Here's a few programs designed to indicate that importance. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff at the end. There are like tax changes and stuff, which is where some of the magic typically happens, regulatory stuff and so on. So uh, I would expect that if they're feeling the pressure on inflation, uh, we will see some programs that are that are framed as reactions to inflation, uh, as well as possibly some stuff around the capital investment file. Uh, but I'm not expecting this to be the sort of like grand liberal plan to tackle the economic problems of uh, sort of 2022 uh, today, I guess. Depending. The liberals, I think they have an awareness that they can't do everything. You know, it's talked about as a very ambitious activist government. Their agenda on climate change kind of all-encompassing, consuming many ministries whole and touching on many other ones, including increasingly public safety, um, given the uh, the issue of adaptation and resilience, and childcare. Childcare, they are in establishing a new national program, you know, this is, you know, on par with what a national pharmacare would be, or almost, you know, as big as healthcare or other social funds. Like, it's a massive entrenched program that they're going to be funding for a long time. So they're going to have to, in some ways, set aside other things, not really focus on other things like a major industrial policy. That's their choice. And they're also, not only are they hearing it from the conservatives and from some other, you know, members of the public on inflation, they're also hearing it from the economist community. You know, if the markets get jittery and there are credit rating cuts or just other signals from sort of the larger banks and the broader business community, this government is, you know, spending too much, you know, is trying to do too much all at once, too fast. um, And its spending is affecting the economy negatively with inflation and other problems. um, Then they will have to uh, pull back. Do we think the government should pull their feet back from the pedal, as it were, and and let the economy now do its thing and reset if it is as strong as Freeland says it is? You know, I saw Bill Morneau, our former finance minister, wrote, you know, that that's uh, what they should be doing. There's still a lot of question marks over what we're dealing with. You put an earlier question as well to all of us over kind of the discourse that we've been experiencing and how much is that going to change as a result of the economic statement. And the reality is it's probably not going to change much. You know, this is this is not how we consume information as human beings. And the meme culture, uh, you know, the Polyev empty gesturing that some critics have you know accused him of, uh, Freeland uh, pivoting to points that she's continuously pivoting to, like that's not going to change. Uh, especially on topics as complicated as uh, the economy, where like even economists struggle to explain it. 
And if for your, your regular average Canadian who's busy throughout their lives, like their interaction with the economy is going to be the grocery aisle where everything is more expensive. It's going to be the housing market. Like where I'm in right now in Brampton, I think the year over year growth uh, from last year to this year was like 33% in like housing, the value of a house. That's, that's absolutely bonkers, right? And so for most Canadians, that's their interaction with this topic. That's what they understand. And they're going to, they're going to break down what they see through feelings, right? They're not going to understand maybe the, the numbers behind everything that they're dealing with, but they understand how it makes them feel. Uh, and that's where Polyev does have an advantage in the kind of communication that he's pushing. And it, and it is why it's working for him. And it quite frankly won't change until those lived realities change on the ground, uh, which again, we just don't know. Like we're in an unprecedented set of time uh, and the economies, like in these inflation numbers, these wage numbers, everything that we're experiencing is, is almost unprecedented, at least uh, in recent memory. So all these things are still there, irrespective of what happens as a result of you know freelance statement. Yeah, I don't know. I appreciate opposition needing to keep government accountable for what they're saying and what they're doing, but they're also not offering solutions or they're not offering alternatives or they're not speaking specifically. Like just once I'd like someone to say, hey, what are you doing about housing and affordability and why aren't you doing this or why aren't you doing that? I think part of the reason is why no one even knows what to do. The reality here is that it is so complex that there is no simple solution. Uh, and it's very difficult to communicate that in any kind of real way that will connect with people, which is why you see politicians always revert back to just these easy to explain sound bites, uh, because it's very difficult to do uh, to do the detail, especially, on, again, something as complex as the economy. If your life is more expensive, it does not matter whether Pierre Polyev is right or not. Frankly, it doesn't matter whether he's saying it or not. And it doesn't matter what Christopher Freeland's response is. Like, a fully reasoned economic argument for why your life is more expensive and you shouldn't worry about it does not make you worry about it less. Madam Speaker, point of order. What is your point of order, Jessica? You know, I've, I've been watching uh, the fallout of Miss Fatima Anvari being fired for wearing a hijab in Quebec, uh, i.e. because of Bill 21. And part of the reaction, obviously, was from politicians. Uh, and I got the sense that some of them were expressing surprise that this would be a real outcome of Bill 21. And that bothered me. And I don't think it's any secret that Bill 21 is discriminatory and, yes, racist, as it targets mostly racialized members of marginalized religions, i.e., typically people from the Muslim community, the Sikh community, or from the Jewish community. Can we now accept that this is happening in Canada? This is a real thing and has resulted in folks moving out of uh, Quebec to other parts of Canada for jobs that they can no longer uh, obtain in that province. And that is a problem. Uh, And so this is just my regular reminder that we need our politicians, the same ones that expressed disgust and surprise at Fatima Anvari's news, to actually stand up and call it out for what it is, because that is, in fact, what religious minorities want. I mean, I I think we'd want also for the set of discrimination not to exist. But yeah, calling it out would be a start. Not a point of order, but valid point. (laughs) Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Murad? It has now been 48 days since the federal cabinet was sworn in. There are these handy things called mandate letters. They are basically the marching orders that the prime minister gives to cabinet members. 
to say, here is your to-do list for the length of this government or this current parliament. The Trudeau liberals made it a habit to release these publicly, which is a good thing. It's a measure of transparency that didn't exist before. However, it's now been 48 days since cabinet was sworn in, and I have to hat tip my friend Nick Taylor Vasey at Political for, for putting that number in his newsletter every day, and we don't have the mandate letters. Now, why does this matter? The government frequently makes the argument, oh, nothing stopped during the election. We kept doing things. We kept working. But we've now had two separate ministers, and those ministers were David Lametti and Mona Fortier, ministers who are not known to rock the boat, who have said, we'd really like to see our mandate letters, please, because we don't know what our instructions are. How is it that after the most consequential election in modern Canadian history, the ministers of this government are so tired of waiting, have been waiting so long that they're willing to say to reporters, I need these instructions, please. I would also like them. And I would like them before the Friday before Parliament lifts, because if they drop them on that Friday, that is going to ruin my weekend. And I would really like that not to happen. Listen, I I share your frustration and I really don't want your weekend to be ruined. And it's also shocking to me how this government or how any government can function sometimes when they keep doing things like this. Madam Speaker, I have what might actually be a point of order. What is your point of order? In the previous segment, I said, oh, Fatima, you're idealist and you think that politics should be all great. And that was very condescending and <laughs> manalsplainy. And moreover, it was just meeping an old codger and, you know, saying, hello, you younger person. So I wish to retract oh my, God. my <laughs> statement and withdraw my statement, Madam Speaker, because it was kind of bullshitty the way I treated you. Listen, that is actually a point of order. <laughs> <laughs> this show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. So as we head towards the end of the year, there's still a lot to think about. Today, as we're recording, Defense Minister Anita Anand is delivering a long-awaited and historic apology to the women and men who are deeply impacted by sexual assault and misconduct in the Canadian military. That's not all. There are so many stories that are still swirling in my head that I wish I had time to get into. People who helped Canadian war efforts are still in Afghanistan waiting to come to Canada. The two Michaels are home, but they need to figure out how to get off bail uh, off the Chinese judicial system, according to Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. Also in China, Jason News, Canada just announced a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics. Now what? 
Meanwhile, the federal NDP can't seem to come out against the B.C. provincial government for their handling of the Wet'suwet'en struggle against coastal gasoline. Several conservative MPs still won't get vaccinated, and the commissioned review won't even tell us if they have a legitimate reason not to. Oh, and Aaron O'Toole's leadership is still being questioned by his own party. To end on a nice note, though, it seems like the new parliament is capable of working together when they want. We saw that earlier this month when they all came together to finally ban conversion therapy. The list just goes on and on and on. So to wrap up, it's our last episode of 2021. I wanted to ask you all about your bests and worsts of 2021, a highlight and a lowlight from each of you. Jason, go. I have a highlight. The Michaels being freed. That was incredibly significant for quite a few reasons, not only because it ended this thousand-day hostage crisis for two Canadian citizens that did, you know, as far as we know, do nothing to deserve that, but, uh, you know, happened to be in China when a government was ornery. It showed that we could find a diplomatic solution eventually. It showed that we have a, you know, once Trump left, as we hoped, we have a, you know, an international relations partner who believes in many of the same values that we do uh, in the U.S. administration. You know, Biden did a lot of heavy lifting on this. Um, we knew that he went to advocate for the two Michaels, both publicly and privately. There was clearly their hand in working on the, uh, you know, trying to get a plea agreement uh, with uh, with Meng Wanzhou in the U.S., the charges which triggered this whole uh, extradition and a hostage-taking uh, crisis. So we know that the U.S. is going to never be a perfect partner with us. There will be trade frustrations, but we know that now, like, if a Canadian is in trouble in a diplomatic situation, U.S. will support us. That is huge. It's also huge that we can now participate as you know, rational actors that are not worried about uh, the fate of two of our citizens in such an acute way as we act diplomatically against China. If the Michaels were still um, being held hostage, I don't know if we would have been able to act like we did on the diplomatic boycott at the Olympics. And our hands would certainly be tied for the decision on Huawei, which seems uh, to be coming fairly soon, uh, which will, I'm sure, be uh, prescribing a lot of serious limits on what Huawei can do, details to be uh, defined. And my God, wasn't that a great moment when we saw them come back and when we saw Michael uh, Michael Kovrig get vaccinated and go around and just be happy and out and about wearing his mask in Canada? That was just a happy moment um, in our country's uh, year. The photos of that were very powerful and the videos of that were very powerful. And it was just a nice diplomatic moment. And and not to put a damper on this, but I will, obviously. There are 115 Canadians still in custody in Chinese prisons. So let's let's not forget the work still continues. The two Michaels were probably the most high profile of them. But there are still a lot of Canadians stuck in China in odd situations that we probably should talk about at some point. Absolutely. But the incredible heat is off uh, is is off this and uh, it allows us to be more you know act without you know incredible fear of retaliation or you know suffering of these two people that were clearly taken political hostage maybe in 2022 we finally get a china strategy from this government who's next any highlights or lowlights yeah well i don't think many people would agree that the election we just had was a highlight this year the results definitely were for me personally uh, I think a minority government 2.0 uh, was exactly the message Canada needed to send to our political leaders and restored some faith back into our democratic society here. And that 
you can't try to call something in the hopes that it falls in your favor and then have it fall in your favor too. Uh, no, that's, that's, that's just asking for too much. This, <laughs> this has to blow up in your face in some way. Uh, in the most uh, upsetting way possible was a return of almost literally the same government, which to me was just amazing. I was actually thrilled by that result. Not because I had particularly any horse in the race, just because I thought it was hilarious. Uh, and, and I'm happy that it ended the way it did. And, and I think that's a highlight that all Canadians can pat themselves on the back with. Uh, and, and hopefully we have a government that lasts more than two-ish years. That's probably asking for too much, but here's hoping. If political karma is a thing, it definitely showed its face this year. I agree. That's it. The karma police. <laughs> the karma police always gets us mad. Murad, do you happen to have a highlight from this crazy year? Uh, I don't do positivity. You know that. I know. That's why I said happen. <laughs> uh, actually, I wanted to, to follow Jessica with my low light because it is about the election, but it's about a specific night of the election, actually. You know, let's let's put aside the, the whole sort of Seinfeld election about nothing thing. Like the night of the English debate, you know, I'm not someone that generally believes in the idea of public debates uh, of that variety, but that debate was depressing for two different reasons. One, much of that, the coverage of that debate, for, for understandable reasons, and much of the sort of dialogue around that debate ended up centering around the way that a moderator had asked a question. You will remember this is the Sachikoro question about Quebec that included Bill 21, and we are now seeing whatever it is now three months hence just how badly addressed the issue was during the election because it you know it somehow comes as a surprise to these people three months later uh, by these people I mean MPs that it continues to be an issue so the fact that that ended up dominating so much of the sort of zeitgeist after the debate the fact that Yves Francois Blanchet the bloc leader came out looking to fight you know if you were a journalist in that scrum he came out wanting to say something about it. He wanted that to be the issue of the night. That was depressing. Uh, and as I think I, I sort of sardonically tweeted the night before during the French language debate, there had been this sort of only mention of racism uh, was a, in a question about Bill 21, but a question about like whether Quebecers were racist rather than about the sort of systemic issues in the country. So that was depressing. But then also that, uh, you know, I'm uh, at the end of the day, a business journalist, and there was no real debate about the economy that night. And I think I think the reason that I bring it up is that it was a night that reinforced my cynicism to me because it reminded me that, in fact, this is theater. I think the thing that, that was depressing to me was that the, the sort of definition of the theater where allowed was even so narrow, you know, that you had two debates, one English, one French, and then, of course, one extra French, that there are so many big problems that that as a society and as a country we have to solve, but the the sort of format of them stuck us to, you know, that whatever weird rotating cast of questions and whatever else was going on in that English language debate, you ended up having the highest level conversation about any given issue. You know, it was very much like highest common denominator. And that, I think that's what we're stuck with. <laughs> and that's depressing. It is depressing, even if as, even if like me, you don't expect anything better. Well, I was going to say, like, I know the pandemic is always number one when it comes to things that have completely debilitated our ability to just do or believe in things sometimes. But the thing that traumatized me the most about 2021 is just the government failures. 
the government failure to communicate, the government failure to act in a timely and effective way. I don't know. There were all these like, you know, when the pandemic started, everyone's like, we're going to do things differently. We're going to try. And I know that was over two years ago when they promised it. But part of me is like, okay, when? Maybe now? Maybe now? On the subject of government mishandling and the uh, pandemic, I'd like to uh, offer my low light of the year. And uh, it's a bit close home for me because I'm uh, in the West. Uh, and that is that conservative Western premier who uh, totally ignored all uh, good, you know, counsel from and, you know, example learning from waves one, two and three and had a disastrous wave four and should have really known better. And uh, his people to suffer the uh, consequences. I could be talking about Jason Kenney, but I'm not. I'm talking about his uh, two-bit understudy, Scott Moe in Saskatchewan. Jason Kenney's crapitude uh, during the pandemic has uh, been covered expensively, including by me. Less discussed is Scott Moe, the province uh, of, a, of a million and change people. There was worry that Alberta would hit the wall and because they opened wide and didn't have uh, much vaccine, as much vaccine uptake as elsewhere, that their ICUs would max out and they'd have to send people abroad or invoke triage uh, protocols, uh, mean, meaning some people would have to be at be not being served by intensive care when they needed it. Didn't happen in Alberta, thankfully. In Saskatchewan, it did. They had to export a number of uh, intensive care patients to Ontario, where some died. They have now had more intensive care patients over the course of this pandemic than any other province on a per capita basis. Uh, their rate in the last month is almost double that of Alberta, which is still one of the higher provinces. And this is because both these provinces chose to open wide and say, damn the cautions, even though their vaccination rates were very low. The tragedy of Saskatchewan is that we know that Jason Kenney is in a lot of political trouble and will be scraping in 2022 to keep his job. I don't know if he will. And is clearly behind in the polls. In Saskatchewan, the Saskatchewan party remains behind Scott Moe, and the Saskatchewan NDP is uh, very puny and uh, not very strong. Um, and uh, they may pick up a couple seats, but uh, Scott Moe's job is seems very one of the most solid in the country. Isn't that scary? Just like the the serious lack of accountability sometimes that these leaders sometimes get away with. Like it's it's terrifying to me. Well, this speaks to responsiveness of population. The Alberta population is really, really roaring back at Jason Kenney. They're they're frustrated with Scott Moe. It's not quite to the same extent. And what's two of his big, um, you know, statements in the last uh, couple weeks that have uh, gained attention? One of them is uh, we can't keep stigmatizing the unvaccinated. You know, apparently, which was on some QAnon forums. We're repeating that excitedly. And he was talking about Saskatchewan being a nation within a nation. What? Saskatchewan, really. Um, so yeah, Scott Moe, I, I think, had uh, might have had the worst 2021. Did anyone get the receiving end of accountability? I mean, if we take Juskran's point and, and, you know, the election is some measure of accountability, maybe it's political karma. But did we see any serious accountability in 2021? Nova Scotia uh, turfed the liberals who were uh, lackluster. True, true. And um, put in a guy who, uh, you know, Tim Houston, who's, or Houston, um, who seems to be quite a moderate uh, conservative, uh, not in the Aaron O'Toole, Jason Kenney, Scott Moe, well, I guess more in the Aaron O'Toole vein. And I would also say that uh, the unpopularity um, and bad decision-making of uh, Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister Mm-hmm. led to him uh him him stepping aside early and heather stephenson uh the premier uh basically has 
you know, been saying, we need to care. We need to start listening. We need to be better than we were, um, even though she was deputy premier. I guess some of the military leaders that were forced to step down or resign could be seen as some measure of accountability for some of the sexual misconduct stuff that's been plaguing that institution for years, or even the shift in defense minister could be seen as accountability. Jim Watson isn't running for mayor in Ottawa, a city that theoretically has an LRT, <laughs> but never seems to in practice. So that's, it's not ballot box accountability, but it stops somewhere short of it. Maybe another highlight, if I could be more positive, was daycare. We finally got a daycare program that is going to matter. That's true. Except for Ontario. It'll come. It'll come. You know, the opposition wants to say that it's going to, you know, it's not It's going to take five years to get to 10 bucks a day. Starting in January, I am paying $1,000 less per month for my two children in daycare because of the money that is flowing. Um, because uh, somebody is finally saying this shouldn't just be a private market do what you are able to solution. That daycare is an important part of our economy and our economic structure. And um, it, it's happening, people, and uh, outside of Quebec. And that is really important. And uh, finally. Well, I guess it, along those lines, I guess, and this is kind of like a perverted highlight, but I think people started to take female and immigrant workers more seriously. Well, yeah, as a, as a Brampton man, uh, I, it was it was nice to kind of read about the, the champions uh, that call our city home as we dealt with stubbornly high transmission rates, which, surprise, surprise, were stubbornly high because everyone here works in frontline industries where they just can't work from home so that you can get your nice deliveries at the door and the factories keep humming and the trucks keep delivering. And these are the people uh, that deserve all the gratitude in the world from folks across this country. Uh, and it's it's not just communities like Brampton, there's many others, you know, that that paid a very steep price to continue providing these services. You know, the, an industry that a lot of my family members are in, and, and my father actually spent decades in, you know, drivers of airport limo and taxi services were the first to start dying from COVID. Right? Mm -hmm. And so, so these are the people that, that face it upfront and personal. And I can say, uh, unfortunately, for, for a very long time, these folks were forgotten or just footnotes of sorts. Uh, and that for the first time in a long time, uh, at least I noticed, I, I don't know if anyone else has, but I, I, I noticed a kind of a humanizing of them, that they're not just cogs in this machine that just don't matter. Indigenous communities also, I think, came into a spotlight in a way I've never, I've never seen before. Well, that was one I was going to share. Uh, in some ways, it's a, well, not some ways, in some very stark uh, and disturbing ways, a, a low light for for Canada and a reckoning that was long overdue in this country. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, and I, we've discussed this before as well. It's like this, I, I personally felt embarrassed and how little I knew of the actual legacy of this country. Um, and again, in, in a kind of weird way, the, the highlight from this is that, you know, I, I, I from what I've seen, and, and I'm sure everyone here would agree, I, I, there's been a bit of awakening um, in, in communities uh, like the one I grew up in that never talked about what the Indigenous community experience here has been and, and what the actual realities of our history is, like this country's history is. Uh, and you're finally starting to have those conversations that were missing. Growing up here and, and going through school, uh, at least when I was going through school, we didn't really talk about any of this. My highlight 
for the year happened fairly recently, and it was at the end of that Canada-Mexico match in Edmonton, uh, the soccer game. And uh, look, I'm not I'm not one for nationalism at all, and I have lots of complicated feelings about the immigrant experience as a first-gen person myself. But this is a moment at the end where Alfonso Davies, one of the best players in the world, this kid who was born in Ghana after his parents fled the Liberian Civil War, who grew up in Edmonton, played in Vancouver, now plays for one of the best teams in the world. He was carrying this giant Canadian flag. Like, it was so large. And he was running down the touchline in Edmonton after they'd beaten Mexico for the first time in, like, decades on home turf, carrying this Canadian flag. And you could see how much it meant to him. And, like, that is the, you know, that, that is the kind of thing that goes into a heritage moment and sort of reinforces this uncritical view of Canada and the world. But to that kid, that was such a great day. And even with all my cynicism, I couldn't help but feel kind of happy for him and and this this kind of collective moment we'd all shared of like using the snow to beat them one of the best national teams in the world in Mexico and Canada having its moment so I don't feel warm and fuzzy often but that that made me feel warm and fuzzy and uh so that was a highlight let's wrap up our wrap up of 2021 by answering the following sentence in 2022 Ottawa will silence <laughs> Apparently nothing. <laughs> will, hey, in 2022, Ottawa will profess that it is addressing the housing crisis. They won't address the housing crisis fully, but they will profess they are. <laughs> in 2022, Ottawa will make some move to cut the deficit, even if by just a token amount. In 2022, Ottawa will not have a running and functional LRT. <laughs> I mean, true, Poor but <laughs> That's the last Backbench episode of 2021. That's the 20th episode of 2021. We'll be back on Tuesday, January 11th. If you're still thinking about the BC floods and how the government should be responding, we just released a bonus episode of my extended conversation with Conservative MP and climate critic Dan Albus. If you're able, please subscribe to check it out. And thank you so much for listening to us. We started in May, covered in an election and so many other things. Politics is complicated, but so important to our lives. I hope you're all learning more about how to think about it as I am. You can send us your questions, your concerns, your rants. Our email is backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. In the meantime, we hope you all have a very happy holiday season. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. Jason, where can people follow your work in the new year? Uh, I will still be at McLean's uh, if all goes well. Um, <laughs> and, sorry. And uh, I am will be on Twitter. I will not delete Twitter just yet. Um, at Mark Asaf. Jessica, where are you? You can find me at Jessica Sandu underscore. Uh, then you can also find us staying out of trouble at Boz News Org on Twitter as well. And Murad, where do people find you in 2022? Uh, my written work is at thelogic.co and my random nihilist musings are on Twitter at M-U-R-A-D-H-E-M. <laughs> this episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. See you in the new year. Bye-bye.